This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Carly Kutnick, and my co-host today is Jody Dixon, an Artemis alumni ambassador out of Juneau, Alaska. How are you, Jody? I'm doing wonderful, Carly. Thanks. I'm so happy you joined us. It's been a couple months since you've been an ambassador, so welcome back, and um, thank you for continuing these wonderful friendships with the Artemis program and staff. Yeah, you're welcome. Jody, do you want to introduce our guests, or would you like me to? Um, I would love to, and um, I had the special opportunity to spend some time with her just uh, last weekend as she came through town, so that was really wonderful, so I'm delighted to introduce Mandela van Eerden, and um, yeah, Mandela uh, is a raft guide, a whitewater kayaker, a comms person for Artemis and NWF and and more. Um, I don't want to get too excited about all of that and let Carly <laughs> um, add to that, um, but I'm really excited for this podcast and to talk a little further um, about uh, Mandela's trip that she took recently, her, her raft trip that she took down the Alsek River, and uh, just some amazing experiences that she's had that I'm uh, excited to talk about here today with you all. Yes, I'm excited too. And perhaps another great descriptor of Mandela is a conservationist. I think she's done really wonderful work. And so Mandela, perhaps in your own words, could you tell us a little bit about who you are? Hello, everyone. Kia ora. Namaste. Aloha. My name is Mandela, and I'm speaking to you today from Missoula, Montana. And I guess if I were to describe what I do and what my intention is, I would say I'm an educator. Um, I 
am dedicated to sharing wildlife and wild places with as many people as possible, because I truly believe that when people experience wildlife and wild places, then they're more likely to walk away and want to work to protect and preserve what we have left on planet Earth. So I wear a lot of different hats. And um, those include being a river guide and being a yoga instructor and being a communications person, podcast host. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I feel like my passion is education and outreach. And I am really dedicated to continuation of seeking and sharing knowledge. When I learn about something that I think is interesting, I kind of jump in full on and learn as much as I possibly can about that subject or that ecosystem or that animal. And then I do my best to share so that others can learn and be amazed by this amazing planet that we live on. And before we jump into um, hearing about the ALSEC, can you please tell us what's in your freezer as our normal Artemis starter? Well, friends, I um, live on top of an old Land Rover. And so I live out of a chili bin, as we call them in New Zealand. I believe in America, they're called a cooler. Uh, in Africa, we call them an icebox. Uh, so I am unable to have access to a freezer unless it's a friend's freezer. Um, I'll tell you that in South Africa, I have some springbok in my freezer down over there, the springbok that I harvested this past December. But um, most recently, I was involved with the collection and freezing of halibut and salmon that we took on our expedition up in Alaska and the Yukon and British Columbia. So um, yeah, nothing in my freezer in Montana because I don't have one and I'm camping as we build a house. But um, yeah, Rose, we definitely uh, harvested salmon and halibut and then took that on the river to share with our guests. Jody, what about you? I, I, I was at your house just the other day and I know you have some amazing <laughs> Uh, game in your freezer? Um, I do. And um, I made a, a deer chili for Mandela while she was here. Um, just that's what was thought and I was making. Um, and we have moose and yeah, salmon, halibut. Um, I don't think we have any elk or sheep right now, but um, hope to rectify that this fall with a sheep hunt. And um, yeah, we're looking forward to hunting season opening here August 1st. So <laughs> filling the freezers again soon. That sounds fantastic. <clears throat> I'm so sad I didn't get to come visit on my way up to Alaska. I went straight from Denver to Anchorage and, and then over to King Salmon and I didn't get the chance to stop down in Juneau. So perhaps next time. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we have and a very robust Artemis presence in, in Juno. And so I just would love to meet all the ambassadors there. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And I am like five minutes from the airport. Uh, our spare bedroom has a lovely view of the Mendenhall Glacier and um, McGinnis. Really? Yeah, that I'm looking at right now. It's raining here in Juneau, Alaska, but I can still see McGinnis Mountain and um, <clears throat> Mandela's favorite, uh, my cat homemade cashew milk um, lattes. I will make you one while you're here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds delicious. Uh, yes, I would. I would love to be uh, privy to that as well. So um, I'll definitely plan a trip up there soon. Awesome. 
All right, Mandela, give us all the details about the about your rafting trip. How did this come about? How did you find out about this? Has this been on your bucket list? Tell us all about this. For sure. I wouldn't say that I'm someone who uses the term bucket list, although it's the most popular term used by my clients and my guests on the river trips that I guide. Um, I tend to not put things off. Uh, I, I definitely put intention and thought and preparation into these expeditions and adventures. But uh, I think that, unfortunately, a lot of people wait too long um, when they have those bucket lists going. So I'd like to just start by saying, you've got everything you need. Don't wait too long. Um, I also kind of back it up and just say that when I was 17 years old, that's when I discovered that you could get paid to run whitewater. And I did an orientation rafting trip with the University of Montana. And I walked up to the guides at lunchtime and I said, you guys are getting paid to do this? This is like a job? And they said, yeah. And I said, I would really like to learn. So I started volunteering, put my time in. And um, now I've spent half my life working as a expedition guide. My focus is for sure on multi-day whitewater expeditions. And the reason that I've spent half my life working as a guide is because I truly believe the people who experience this wildlife and these wild places, they are more likely to walk away and fight to protect them. And I've seen that firsthand again and again, whether it's on the Grand Canyon, whether it's on the Middle Fork of the Salmon, whether it's in New Zealand or in Morocco or in the Alsec. When people are out there for more than 24 hours, they sleep and they wake up and they exist in those wild places, that's when I see this huge shift. And that 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 keeps bringing me back uh, because it's not easy work. It most certainly is hard on the body and you're not home that much when you're doing it full time, um, but it's worth it when you see how it changes lives. And so, you know, for many, many years, over a decade, I worked all over the world for 250 days of the year doing back-to-back -back expeditions. So for a while there, right towards the end before I took this job with the National Wildlife Federation, I was guiding on the Grand Canyon and that season would start in April. Then I would head to the Middle Fork of the Salmon, June, July. Then I would head back to the Grand Canyon. Then I'd head over to New Zealand, maybe pop up to Missoula for a moment, and then head to maybe Morocco in the March, and then back to Grand Canyon, do it all over again. And so um, that's not sustainable for the human body, I don't think. And I don't think it's healthy to necessarily row thousands and thousands of miles every year. So now I really try to be intentional with the expeditions that I sign up to guide and lead. And a lot of the times they have a conservation connection. And that's most certainly the case with the Alsec River. It's a transboundary river that starts just outside of Haines Junction in the Yukon Territory. So we start at Serpentine Creek and there's no current there. It's, you know, that's basically a lake. And we row and row and row until we come to the confluence where the Alsec River starts. And the Alsec River slices through the largest nonpolar ice field in the world. It is a transboundary river, like I said. So, in terms of our work in conservation, uh, you know, starting in Canada and ending in Dry Bay on the Gulf of Alaska. It's a transboundary river that crosses international boundary lines. And so we started in the Yukon. We went through British Columbia and crossed back over into Alaska and flew at the end of the day from Dry Bay all the way back to Haines um, over that nonpolar ice field. And it was very, very inspiring. And it brought a lot of hope for me to see all of the ice. There's a lot of ice left 
and the next 10 years are pivotal on our planet for people to start taking action and getting engaged as we mitigate and adapt to a changing climate. So it was very much, um, it was very recharging for my spirit and my soul to be out there and specifically to end by flying over the ice field and to see all that ice and to feel hope when I saw that ice. That's fantastic. And it's, yeah, it, it brings me great joy too. I was talking to one of our Artemis ambassadors um, in Florida just yesterday, and they're having severe bleaching events right now um, this early in the year. And so it's wonderful to hear that um, there is a counter to some of those situations where we still do have tremendous amounts of ice in, in these ice fields. So, so thanks for sharing, Mandela. For sure. And, you know, the ice is there, but the ice is melting. And it's, it's melting faster right. than it ever has, you know, and, um, you know, I, I really can geek out and nerd out when it comes to whitewater and expeditions. And, and, and we, we, you know, we say river trips sometimes. And so I would say the the trips I guide in the Grand Canyon, those are two week river trips. I would say that's a river trip. Now the ALSEC is a 12 day expedition and we can dive into what makes it an expedition, um, but there's a lot of logistics and a lot of concerns regarding wildlife and weather that make it an expedition. But you know, one of those things is we are running this river. It's a glacial high volume river, and it's fed by, again, this world's largest nonpolar ice field. We pass hundreds of glaciers along the way. And as the river drops into a glacial lake, if the wind has pushed all the icebergs to the top of that lake, we, we you know, have to navigate those icebergs as we enter the lake. And we stop and we'll get our binoculars out and we'll see where the icebergs are. And then we, 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 we pick our line, our route to, to enter the lake based on where those icebergs are located. And so we'll camp on the lake. Sometimes we actually do a layover where we stay two nights on the lake with all the icebergs and looking at the glacier. We partly do that because the whole trip itself is very exhausting, not only for the guides, but also for the guests. And so I'll never forget one morning waking up and, you know, we don't have darkness um, this time of year. So it was, it was, it was light uh, 24 seven. And so I remember waking up and hearing thunder and feeling thunder and it was continuous. And I was like, oh, here's those, the storms I heard about because this place has pretty volatile weather. And I was like preparing to go out and have my rain jacket and maybe even wear my dry suit that day. And uh, I unzipped the tent and it was a bluebird sky day. There was no clouds in the sky at all. And it was the icebergs. That was the sound I was hearing. And so you get used to that sound of those icebergs caving. And so um, when the ice is melting faster than it ever has, the river can go suddenly up 38,000 cubic feet per second overnight. And 38,000 cubic feet per second is a significant bump in the flow of the river. For example, the Clark Fork River, just down below where I'm sitting right now, that runs through Missoula, Montana. I think it spiked around 36,000 cubic feet per second this year. So a bump of 38,000 cubic feet per second overnight because of a warm spell is um, one way that you know climate change is affecting river runners. And I'll also just add that in 2016, the ELSEC captured the flow of the Slims River due to the retreat of the Kaskawash Glacier. And um, it's attributed to the change in flow to human-caused climate change. And this was the first time human-caused climate change was implicated in the reorganization of a river. And so, you know, there's a chance that the river could change its location 
by like upwards of 17 miles as the glaciers continue to change and shift and the river changes where it flows. And it's consistently changing where it flows. You actually can hear and feel the geology forming as you float this river because it's glacial fed and because the um, braided channels are constantly changing. So um, yeah, quite a lot of water. When we entered Dry Bay in the Gulf of Alaska, the river was flowing 105,000 cubic feet per second. That's crazy volume. <laughs> I encourage listeners to check out um, just what is the volume of rivers in your area and um, get to have some familiar concept to like what are what do these numbers of cubic feet per second, what does a CFS, these volumes kind of mean when you're looking at a river and um, I just want to echo what I see right out my window with the Mendenhall Glacier melting. And there's, you know, I've only been in Alaska 20 years, but there's rock on the mountains that I have never seen before. Like it's, it's melting in front of my eyes and there's rock that has greenery on it now that used to just be bare because it had just had ice melt off of it. And, uh, as I hear you talking with so much passion, Mandela, I, you know, I share that and there's, I think, um, guides or just, you know, hunters or people that love being in the back country and, and do it a lot. You know, we have an appreciation for these wild places that we are in. And yes, there's a, you know, an experience of unplugging and, and all of that, but I am wondering if you have, um, some particular reactions from clients that stand out in your mind, you know, that they, they don't really know what they're getting into. And then, you know, all of a sudden, like maybe there's, it, it hits them, or maybe it's at the end of the trip where what they've experienced hits them. Um, yeah. I'm just wondering if there's some client reactions to, you know, an expedition like the ALSEC that stand out for you. Beautiful. So I truly believe that if we want to heal the earth, we got to start from within ourselves. And it's hard not to get emotional when I talk about this because a lot of healing happens in nature. And it's pretty amazing to be a conduit of those types of experiences where people can actually unplug and feel relatively safe in a place that is home to the largest density of grizzly bears per capita in North America. You know, that's my job as a guide to make sure they're warm and to make sure they're fed and to make sure they have water and also to make sure they're safe. And so for them to have that ability to be immersed in nature, be in a relatively safe yet uncontrolled environment so that they can open their heart and take it all in. And so some of the things that come to mind for me is watching people face some of their biggest fears and realize that they are capable. And sometimes, you know, I'll take someone down the river who can't swim or had a really negative experience with a river with whitewater when they were young. And it's really quite an honor to be able to hold their hand and help them take that first step because that's the hardest part. That first step towards facing the fear of, you know, being in a paddle raft and running some of the biggest whitewater there is, or facing the fear of heights and going through the narrows to Deer Creek Patio in the Grand Canyon. And so 
these trips help heal people inside. And then something happens very magically at the end of the trip where that evolves into not only caring for themselves more than they did previously, but also caring for the place that helped change them. Yeah, 100%. I, I agree. And, and Marcia used to talk about this all the time as well. Um, so I feel like this has been like a constant um, motto for Artemis is that if people can appreciate these wild places, wild animals, then you are inspired to, you know, learn more and be more engaged in conservation in whatever form. And there are many forms um, that people can be involved. So I guess big high five for putting all the effort you do put in to um, help show people these amazing places. And yeah. It's a very, very special opportunity to be on a river for multiple days. And if you walk away from this interview and you end up just doing an overnighter, then I think that that's a major success, you know, but please don't wait too long. I would say that the majority of my guests tell me they wish they hadn't waited so long. So for a trip like the Alsec or a trip like the Grand Canyon or a trip like the Middle Fork of the Salmon, you know, if, if that's on your radar, if that's something you want to do, I'd say don't wait too long because it's truly a life-changing opportunity and experience. And it's a big eye-opener for folks. I've definitely seen people walk away and change careers or um, change something about what's going on in their life that they up until that point didn't realize, um, you know, that they had the ability to step into their power. And um, so nature can open up your eyes in many, many ways, but particularly the river too. And, and, and just like entering the river, going with the flow, dealing with one wave at a time, there's so many ways that you can relate running rivers to navigating your own life. Mandela, I'd, I'd love to dig down a little bit more into that. And I'd love to hear, so I, I know a lot of people feel stuck when they get to those things because either the access isn't there or the cost is too great or the, how can people begin to have these experiences and and still be safe while um, really choosing to face their fears, maybe, especially their fears in nature. I know I have some. Um, when I get into true wilderness, I do start, you know, every noise, every every um, rock looks like an animal. Every everything, all of your senses are extremely engaged. Um, how do you? What is your method of um, coaching people through that experience? And then what's your recommendation on having people start that experience? I'll start with the latter question. I feel like a really a really great opportunity to start to step into some place that might feel a little uncomfortable to you because you don't necessarily have, you know, expertise skill sets or whatever. I, I hear this a lot of the times, like, especially when it comes to like yoga, I just taught yoga this morning. And a lot of the times people say, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not good at yoga. I'm like, well, the hardest part is showing up, you know, and, and that's like, that's taking that first step. And so um, I, I just had to also say in the yoga sutras by Pantanjali, it says, 
Yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha, which can be translated as yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. So it has nothing to do with touching your toes or being able to do a handstand or anything like that. Like there's many ways that we can enter that experience of quieting the mind and being on the mat, doing postures is one approach. You know, for me, it's, it's, it's mainly running whitewater. That's the main place in my life where I'm fully focused and in my night, my mind is not wandering. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of like, just, you know, having people show up, I think that the first thing that comes to mind are the Artemis events that are happening all over the country. And so, um, you know, I'm, there's a good chance someone's listening who has looked into an event and is thinking about doing it. I would say do it. You know, it's, it's a great opportunity to make community because, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. It's a, it's a proverb that I really love. And so it starts with this community. You know, when we go down the river, we become a tribe. It's, it's not, we're not alone. We're, we're, we're together. And, and, and as a team, we make the expedition work. And so um, by going to an Artemis event, I feel like that's a great opportunity to step into a safe community that also um, is a place where you can ask questions and, and, and be yourself and feel safe and, and, and ask the same question multiple times. Because as we learn, you know, it, that's, a, that's such a beautiful journey to be on. And I think it's very important to be in that beginner's mindset at all times. What can you learn from this experience? What can you learn from this person? Um, and then also, how can you share and inspire someone else? And so um, Artemis events come to mind, you know, that you don't need to like go out and run the LSEC as a 12 day expedition. And for people who are paying a commercial company to take them down, it's about $7,000 to do the upper LSEC. But there's other opportunities, you know, there's, I'm sure there's a river near your town and um, there's also opportunities to go on private trips. So I, you know, I really do believe also in manifesting things. If you want to go on a river trip, start thinking about it, start putting that energy out there, start talking about it. And you'll be surprised. Suddenly someone will say, Hey, you know, I've got a 10 day trip on the Tachinchini river um, with space available. Do you want to go? And that's, that's one of the rivers that joins the Alsec. And we pass that confluence while we're on this journey. So I would say just, just get out the door, take that first step, fill your camel back with water, go to the top of the mountain near your home, make friends. When they invite you to get on the river and go fishing with them, or they invite you to try something new, take them up on it. And it really embrace that beginner's mindset. And then from there, things build, right? Like making a little snowman. You, you, you don't have to go right into the expedition. You, you build up to it. Um, and uh, there's just so many ways that we can explore this world, but I think you got to tune into yourself and what makes your heart sing. Maybe you don't feel comfortable running rivers. No worries. I'm very intrigued by people who actually don't really want to be on the river. I, I think that that is wonderful to know that about yourself and to be able to say no. It's a very important um, skill set to be able to say no. No, I'm not that comfortable on the water, but my place is in the mountains, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, and then in my role as a guide, I think it's very important to make sure that my guest knows that I wasn't born an expert. You know, I was not born knowing how to handle the logistics of a expedition in the world's largest protected wilderness area. You know, I took that journey of having experiences, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes in order to get to where I am now. So I really try to look at all of my guests as potential guides, because the truth is, it's never too late, my friends. If you're listening to this, you're like, man, I wish I would have become a guide. Guess what? You can still become a guide. 
um, whether it's a hiking guide or a whitewater guide, whatever kind of guide you want to be. So I never actually thought I would become a guide, but I did show up when they said, sure, you can start volunteering. I showed up, I put my time in. I really embraced mentors and, and, and then with all those skills along the way, I feel that that actually has prepared me to be on the ALSEC. When I was out on the ALSEC over the past two weeks, I really reflected on how all of the experiences and all the rivers I've guided on all over the world have really prepared me for this river because everything that you can imagine, you need to think about when you're on this river, whether it's grizzly bears, whether it's helicopter portages, whether it's the weather itself, um, so I want to make sure that my clients feel safe. And part of that safety is removing the ego, you know, removing the ego and just remembering that at the end of the day, we're a community who are going down the river together and uh, making sure folks know what they need to do in order to actively participate in their own self-rescue. Should they fall out of the raft or should they wander away from camp and run into a bear? So, you know, stepping into that role as an educator making sure that you know you understand how that person absorbs information and you make sure that they understand all of the safety components of being out in that wilderness area and then just let them be themselves. So do away with the ego and carry two cans of bear spray. One can of bear spray is fine. <laughs> I, I'd say one can of bear spray. Is fine. Yeah. <laughs> and Jody, and go together often. <laughs> and go together community yes those uh that's a little bit watered down of a version of the takeaways but um jody do you carry a lot of bear spray um on your day-to-day -day adventures um i actually prefer to um carry a handgun um and i also have three dogs or multiple people when i'm out so that's <clears throat> my my mission for bear safety there um and I wanted to add you know, sort of to your question and Mandela's answer when, she, you know, you're working with people who are, you know, dealing with fear right there um, in wild places. Mandela already mentioned, you know, taking one river, you know, one wave at a time, you know, one rapid at a time, one day at a time. And I feel like that's something that is um, something I coach, you know, other women in the Artemis events or just other people in the backcountry, And when I've been guiding, it's just like, let's take a moment, one step at a time. And what is the worst case scenario? And then what are the options? Kind of just like break it down. And um, all of that to also kind of segue or plant the seed for any other specific um ideas or comments Mandela wants to add for how she mentors women. You know, obviously she's mentoring women as being a women raft guide in a fairly male dominated um, arena, but just any other ways that either you feel like you have or that you're really looking forward to um, mentoring women. Beautiful, you know, right when the workday ends today, uh, at around midday, noon, I'm gonna be taking a good friend of mine riverboarding uh, down the Alberton Gorge. And so I've been approached recently by a lot of people, uh, mainly women who are asking me to help them be more comfortable with the river. And so I feel like riverboarding is a really great way to get more intimate with the river because you're swimming. 
you're swimming with a board and flippers and a helmet and a PFD and a wetsuit or a dry suit. And, uh, you know, I, so I'm, I'm, I, I feel like that's my, uh, kind of skeleton key of choice when it comes to helping people meet the river and, um, on their own, you know, taking one step at a time towards building up to maybe running some whitewater on that riverboard. Um, doesn't really require any skill sets other than making sure you keep holding onto the riverboard because if you let go of the board then you're then you're you're definitely swimming you're swimming with flippers but you you're swimming at that point but like unlike whitewater kayaking where you kind of need to know a little bit about how to paddle and how to get in and out of the boat uh riverboarding is a really great way for me to start sharing the river with people so if you're in the missoula area and uh, that is interesting to you i would definitely look into montana river guides um they also teach Swiftwater Rescue all over the world, but they have programs where they take people out on riverboards. And most of those people don't have any experience. They also have a program where they take veterans out on riverboards. And so um, that's one of the ways that I found is really nice to help people just right there experience it. And they're experiencing the river and I'm nearby. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm just the conduit for helping make that introduction and I'm nearby to help save them if they need, but they're able to really have their own journey holding onto their own board um, and going down the river. So that's one way. Uh, and then, you know, just when I'm on the river, um, making sure that it's a safe environment to ask all the questions that, you know, might need to be addressed. Like, for example, what happens and how do you handle it when you're on your cycle and you're in bear country? Or um, what kind of uh, focused uh, workouts can you do to get a little bit more core strength so that you can move that boat when the wind is gusting 40 to 50 knots across a glacial lake and you are rowing for seven hours just to get across that lake. I mean, there's some little fine tuning things that I've learned along the way that have really helped me as a guide. And, um, and also as just a, a girl who likes being outside and experiencing wild places. And so, um, I think it really comes down to listening honestly. And I think that a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of just saving the world at the end of the day is, is being able to be an active listener. And so that means for me, that means listening to what the person in front of me is saying without thinking about what I'm going to say next. And so I feel like just a lot of healing um, and strengthening and learning can happen if we just learn to listen to each other. Thanks, Mandela. And with that, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our partners. And we're back. Thank you, Jody, for being here. And Mandela, this is such a lovely interview. I'm I'm really enjoying just listening. So um, thank you for sharing this story. I am curious, um, what do you feel is the biggest connection that you have between guiding and conservation? And I know the two definitely have a nexus for you, but I, I'd love to hear about both independently and then also both together. How, how do they feed into each other? Hmm. Well, we we're talking a little bit about, you know, people who want to get out and explore nature, but don't necessarily have the skill sets or the gear to do it. You know, guiding is a great opportunity for you to be able to get out there and experience some of the wildest places in the world um, and be relatively safe. Assuming that you follow the instructions given by the guides and you use good judgment. Um, you know, these days it sounds like a lot of people without experience are even climbing Mount Everest. Um, I'm not that interested in being a guide on Everest, but I am certainly interested in continuing to guide rivers around the world um, until I am 
unable to climb back in the boat on my own. That's that's my cutoff. So I, I'm thinking maybe my late seventies, but um, I don't know. I think these workouts will probably keep you keep you well into your eighties. So you'll be fine. <laughs> that and yoga. You're nineties. You're good till you're ninety. Oh, well, exactly. No problem, Mandela. And by then we'll have the technology that it won't be a problem at all. This won't be a barrier. <laughs> I appreciate it, friends. I appreciate it. I hope maybe my guiding will evolve into something a little bit different at that point. But, um, you know, I just feel like guiding, you know, definitely presents an opportunity for people who don't have necessarily this right skill sets or the gear to get out and experience these places. And then I said it earlier, and I'll say it again, and I'll, I'll say it again. You know, the, the reason I've guided half my life is because I truly believe that people who experience wild places, and that means when I say experience, I'm saying you didn't just walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, take a selfie, and then take a couple other pictures and walk away. That's not an experience, friends. Like, let's sometimes let's put the phone down. And I need to be I need to be reminded of this too because of my job as a content creator. I'm constantly taking films and taking pictures, but it's important to put the camera down and be still and be present and really experience the smell of the, you know, the, the smell of the rain after 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 a thunderstorm or the sound of those glaciers as they're caving in or you know the the way that the the wind hits your face and you know i i also tie this into it that i really think it's important to be uncomfortable and at, at times i think it really adds a lot of perspective to your life and will shift a lot of the ways that you interact with people and with wildlife and with weather um when you're you're not in wild places when you're in civilization you know that added perspective of a a, a an adventure really does shift your life outside of that adventure. Um, so yeah, in terms of the way that, you know, guiding is this way for people to have access to these wild places. For me, I feel like kind of a conduit and, 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 and a, um, an educator and a leader in that realm, making sure it's safe and that you really, as a guide, you wake up in the morning. And when I'm, and when I'm mentoring other guides, one of the things I like to say is just wake up in the morning, look at every one of your guests and think about how you're going to make their day. And everybody's day is made a little bit different. Some people just want to have a conversation with you. Some people um, have gone out of their way to say, hey, you know, I'm really afraid of snakes. If you could help me face that fear of snakes, I'd really appreciate it. And, you know, you kind of think, well, where might I be able to um, help them face that fear today? Or how, how can I help make everyone's day special on that river trip? So, um, that's that's part of the role as a guide but then you know just conservation it's when people go down the grand canyon and they are learning along the way as a guide it's just like this platform where i can truly tell people about these wild places and also what's threatening these wild places and what they can do about it and so it's really amazing to actually see these people evolve into conservationists at the end of the trip um, and they do. And it's it, the majority of the time they do become conservationists in their own way, whether it's, you know, um, writing a letter to the president to designate Grand Canyon National Monument so it can be permanently protected from uranium mining, or maybe they are someone who has the additional funds to be able to support efforts on the ground in Tanzania to prevent the poaching of elephants and rhinos. You know, there's just many different ways that people can go about becoming a conservationist. And as a guide, throughout the journey, I try to figure out what their interests are so that I can help share knowledge um, that could help them be inspired in that realm. I'm so glad you mentioned people being uncomfortable and it's, you know, okay and even good to be uncomfortable. 
And that might seem counterintuitive when we're talking about, um, you know, you've very, you know, you've described in great detail how to, you know, make people feel safe and comfortable on, uh, you know, a multi-day trip or, you know, something more extreme like an expedition on the ALSEC. And it can sound counter um, or conflicting to say we're trying to, you know, help our friends or our guests be feeling comfortable and safe. Um, yes, but to be uncomfortable is almost inevitable. And um, to, you know, be wet, be cold, be in an environment that is um, creating emotions in your body that is fearful and, you know, things like that. Like there's going to be discomfort and uh, it's okay. You can embrace that. At the same time, I, I feel like it's okay to do what you can to be comfortable so that you can want to come back and do it again. I guess it's not a question. It's more of a statement. I'm <laughs> wondering how that fits into how either of you see our backcountry adventures. Love it. Carly, do you want to, do you want to um, add into that? So, so I, I think discomfort, Jody, I, I completely agree. I think discomfort is what, um, allows you to be unbelievably present, right? A little rush of adrenaline, right? The, the physiological response that you feel when you have discomfort um, allows allows you to be more alert and aware and intake, right? Your pupils dilate. You intake so much more. And I think having that on an extended period, which Mandela shared um, with her, with the folks that she took down the river, um, the folks that she guided, I think that there's, I mean, I think there's something that's so special about it and that people in multiple different places, given the timing, like Mandela mentioned, um, out in a place where they are not, where they're not familiar, um, specifically in nature, I think it brings, it brings things into focus. It brings things, um, it, it, helps you realign and reprioritize really what is valuable, what is important and, and what they, what they maybe should focus on instead of the, I don't know, the, the extras, I, I guess I think of the it selfies. as kind of these, <laughs> the, the selfies, the, the <laughs> other life stressors, right? These things that you don't, that you don't have, um, that you spend so much time focusing on, right? How people perceive you, what people think, what people, um, you know, how how you're, goodness, doing, you know, how you're engaging with your neighbors, how you're engaging. And I think all of that just goes to the wayside when you're fully present, fully aware and and uncomfortable. Exactly. I'll, absolutely. I'll just tag on that to me that's describing forced meditation self-inflicted forced meditation there's a lot of people who are like ah, i don't want to sit and meditate and that's not for me and well, that's okay there's like as many people on the planet earth that's how many different ways there are to meditate and it's just another way of you know saying or just you know what you just described being present so you know and that's where at what Mandela described is where people realize they've had, uh, you know, maybe they don't realize, but they've come to a decision because they've been through 
a time period where they've been actually focused and present. And then, wow, all of a sudden you pop out on the other side at the takeout and you're like, oh, I'm going to quit my job mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think out of curiosity and before you go, Andal, I'm sorry. Um, do you think that this is part of it is like a, that, that discomfort, do you think that results in like minor dissociation so that you can put things into perspective? Do you think dissociation would be a good way to describe that? Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean that, um, <laughs> I, I think it could be, um, uh, it's, I guess the way I would describe it and, you know, kind of take out words like meditation that is maybe not something that people, um, relate to, but, um, just the way you described setting aside all of the extra stuff in our mind um, and, and being very clear with your focus. And this might not make sense to everybody who's maybe not experienced a really kind of, you know, uh, moment where they had to be brave and there was a lot of fear. And so they're like trying to, you know, build up the courage to, to do whatever it is that they're going to do. And, and when you have that opportunity and you decide, yes, I'm going to do this, but like, okay, like it's scary. So I have to like really focus. I don't think they realize like that intense focus is being present, you know? So all of the other extra stuff just is away. And although it's intense on your body, it's a break for your mind even like intense concentration on like one thing, it's like down-regulating the stress of modern life in your mind and, and just becoming very single-pointed and clear. Beautiful. Like I'm looking down at my hands right now and they're finally starting to look pink again. My hands were completely black, covered in cuts, covered in calluses, cracked. Like there's like a little Alsec river corridor in my hand right now, sincerely, because, you know, we work, we use our hands. But my <laughs> mind, my friends, I didn't think about work for like two weeks. Yeah, I know work I work as a guide, but I'm talking about like National Wildlife Federation and communications and social media and analytics and all that stuff. I didn't think about it once. I was so totally present in that wilderness. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, it's hard on the body, but wow, what a re what a, what a way to push refresh. And, um, in terms of like, you know, trying to the minutia of being uncomfortable to add perspective to your life, you don't necessarily have to go out of your way to be fully uncomfortable because for a lot of people, you know, who are used to sidewalks and suddenly find themselves walking on uneven terrain, um, whether it's up in Alaska or in Arizona or wherever you are, um, that's sometimes more than enough of a, a nudge into the uncomfortable zone. But there's ways that you can actually start to, you know, balance it out. And for example, as a guide, I know I have to admit that I am not always great about taking care of myself. I take care of my clients really well, but I, I, I don't necessarily take as good of care of myself. And maybe that's not just as a guide. Maybe that's as a human, you know, coming back to like, can we, can we be as kind to ourselves as we are to others? Let that soak in. Be as kind to yourself as you are to others. And so I'm trying to do that as a guide. And one of the ways that I was trying to be as kind to myself as I am to others is, uh, you know, I let myself have a fresh pair of wool socks every single day on this expedition. And that's a little bit, um, 
what's the word that my little sister taught me the other day? Bougie. Is that a word? I don't know, really know what it means, but you know, like to have a <laughs> pair of socks every day on a river expedition. That's not normally what I do. Um, like on the Grand Canyon, I don't even sure how many pairs of socks I bring on that river trip, but for the ALSEC, yes, ma'am. I had a fresh pair of wool socks every day. And that was such a treat to put on those wool socks every day, even though like my other stuff was damp, um, you know, and, and the river was way too cold, 34, 36 degrees Fahrenheit for me to actually jump in and take a bath. Those wool socks, man, that was such a treat. So, um, but I would love to dive into a little bit more of the adventure with you all and some of the wildlife uh, kind of on the surface. But like this, this river, you know, we, it's not very common for people to run the upper Alsec. So it's a lot of the times, there's a lot of private trips that run the Touch and Chini River, but the upper Alsec isn't super common. And part of the reason for that is because of Turnback Canyon. So in the world of whitewater kayaking, Jody, remind me, is it called the crown jewels? Is that what they call it? The yes. Three, yeah. Can you tell people what that means? What are the crown jewels? I would just say that you use the correct term. Um, I would keep going. Well, you're talking about like the three rapids of uh, on the Grand Canyon and on the Alsec, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, like there's there's uh, there's three of the most difficult rivers in the world to navigate, and like some whitewater kayakers have been able to complete all three uh, for whatever personal reasons that they've decided at that point in their life they had the skills to navigate those sections of water. But one of the crown jewels is Turnback Canyon on the Upper Alsec River, and so we're talking about CFS cubic feet per second. So just to visualize that, it's about the size of a football um, or a turkey. Um, and when I say the river was flowing 105,000 cubic feet per second, when we entered dry Bay, that means at one point in the river, if you were to measure the amount of water crossing one point in the river, every second, it's about 105,000 turkeys crossing the river. Does that make sense? That I've never used a turkey as a comparison, but I get the feeling people listening, you know, know how big a wild turkey is. And so if you just can imagine 105,000 wild turkeys worth of water crossing one point in the river every second, that is a lot of water. And so um, <laughs> I had to laugh at myself because I was not planning on using a wild turkey as a comparison there, but it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I would like I would like you to create a, a quick depiction since you, you are a content creator. Maybe oh, we could uh, make this happen. <laughs> I have in my mind right now imagining that. Okay, so we have 105,000 cubic feet per second, 105,000 turkeys. Um, and then that gets squeezed into Turnback Canyon, which is, you know, a little over 25 feet wide. So all this water, I mean, that river, the Alsek River at its widest point is like two miles wide at its widest point. And so all that river gets squeezed into this gorge. And one side of the gorge is the Tweedsmere Glacier and 11 miles of terminal glacial terrain. In terms of a portage, you'd have to navigate 11 miles of terrain. It takes about two days for people to do the portage, um, depending on the amount of gear that they have and the amount of help they have. And then on the left-hand side is Mount Blackador. Mount Blackador got its name because Walt Blackador ran Turnback Canyon for the first time in 1971. And he did it alone, which is not advised, and he barely survived. And so he said that it's unrunnable. So that's why it's considered class five plus, class five plus six. So we rate rivers around the world on a scale from one to 10, sorry, one to six. The Grand Canyon is different. We do one to 10 down there, but mostly it's one to six. And class six is usually considered unrunnable until somebody does it. And then it's like class five plus. But so Turnback Canyon, they say it's class five plus. 
but it's not necessarily whitewater. It's boils and surges. And um, we're talking about boils that when you hit that eddy line where one current is going one direction, the other current's going the other direction, you could actually flip a 2,500 pound, 18 foot gear boat, which is what I was rowing. And so with it being a commercial trip and the fact that we weren't out there to, you know, run uh, white water where if you fall out, you're definitely dying. We decided to do the helicopter portage. And so commercial trips, they do the helicopter portage. Most private trips do the helicopter portage. And so that means that um, we are the whole trip, all the food and the way that we handle the, uh, the gear and the planning, we need to make it sure that halfway through the expedition, when we are above Turnback Canyon, each load that that helicopter takes is going to be exactly 1,400 pounds. And so above Turnback Canyon, we deflate all of our rafts, we fold them onto their frame, and then we load all the gear on top of that frame, and we put all that gear inside of a net that's then attached to a helicopter. The helicopter flies in, and they are able to carry that gear one load at a time over the seven kilometer stretch of gnarly class five plus whitewater. They drop us off on the other side of Turnback Canyon. In this case, they dropped us off on a gravel island bar below the whitewater section. And then they did four loads. So the first load was with um, me and some guests and then, then three more loads with gear and a guide who was clipping the gear on at the other side. As a trip leader, logistically, if the weather changes and suddenly half your expedition is on the other one side of Turnback Canyon and the other half of your expedition is on an island below Turnback Canyon, that can be kind of stressful. And that does happen, but that's part of what makes it an expedition. And so once the helicopter drops us off, then we inflate all the boats again, put all the boats back together. And we, we've taken everything apart at this point. We put it all back together and we go rafting again. And so it's a pretty epic uh, part of the trip. It's certainly a highlight for the guests. Um, sometimes the helicopters actually fly through Turnback Canyon. Um, other times they'll they'll fly above it so you can see the glacier on your right and you can see the tight gorge on your left. Um, but that's one of the reasons why it's not super common for people to run the upper Alsec privately uh, because of the logistics of that helicopter portage. And I found, I think that the, in terms of the cost of the helicopter portage, I think it's about five to $6,000 for three rafts to do the portage. So when you share that with a group of friends, then it ends up being a little bit more affordable. But that's part of the reason that people like seek out a commercial company in order to like put the thought into what meals are you going to serve in the days leading up to that helicopter portage? Because the weight needs to be 1,400 pounds. Every river I've guided on all over the world has such different dynamics to it. The river itself, the Alsec is like, unlike any river I've ever run. I mean, the, all of the shallow shoals and the braided channels and the, you know, when, when the one glacial lake dumps into a section of whitewater and suddenly you're running whitewater with icebergs that are bigger than your raft. You're going down river and you're like, is that an iceberg or is that a rock? That was a first, that was a new thing for me. I really enjoyed that. But every river around the world has a different way of like, how do we poop in the wild? You know, in, in Namibia, where I guide on the Orange River, we uh, send folks out into the desert and they, they, they poop in the ground. And, and, and it's so hot out there. It's like, I'm not sure in, in Fahrenheit, but we're like talking 50 degrees Celsius. It's so hot that, 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 that their, their waste actually just gets completely fossilized and zapped up. Well, on the Grand Canyon, on the Middle Fork of the Salmon, we, we, we have groovers. So we actually have toilets that we bring on the river with us. The Grand Canyon, it's an, it's a, it's an old ammo can and 
um, on the LSEC and on the middle fork, it's an actual like al aluminum box that has a toilet seat on it and people can use that. But um, every single river is completely different. And one thing that was really weird for me is that on the LSEC, we burn our burn our trash in the morning and in the evening, we have to make a big fire and we use that fire in order to uh, make coffee and warm dishwater. But we also use that fire to burn all of our trash. So all of the food waste, all of the plastic, all of the aluminum and all of the tin, which I've never burnt aluminum and tin before. But part of the reason we do that is because of the bears. So again, highest density of grizzly bears per capita in North America. So we don't want any smells around camp, but then also because of the weight in the helicopter load when we do that portage. And so, you know, as a as an expedition trip, it is incredible that people can have the ability to go and navigate in a protected wilderness area that encompasses over almost 38,000 cubic square miles. And it's the largest protected wilderness area in the world. It is, um, you know, these parks are in Canada and in the United States. And um, it's home to five species of salmon, doll, sheep, uh, grizzly bears, black bears, caribou, uh, wolves, lots and lots of wolves. Uh, the species of wolf that's found there, the Alexander Archipelago, I've, a little bit smaller. I didn't see one, but I certainly heard them and saw their footprints. Uh, but yeah, I just, you know, as an expedition as a whole, I just really think that if you get the chance to go up to Alaska and run a river, I'd recommend it. I just, Jody, you live in a really groovy part of the world, and um, I do too. Gosh, but Alaska is something else. And I just kind of end with you know the John Muir quote that says something along the lines of, "Don't go to Alaska when you're young, because you'll never find anywhere else in the world that compares to it." That's not the exact quote, but it's something along those lines. And Alaska and the Alsek in particular have definitely stolen my heart. Thank you for sharing that. I that's so it's so magical. I I love hearing your descriptions of everything and. I living two years in Alaska myself, I can completely relate of it's just there's something to be said for that landscape and something to be said for um, that level of, I don't know, I, I, I guess I don't know what you would call it of, of disconnect from normal society, right? Like, yes, there's a couple of um, like municipalities and, and, and small like or I guess villages out in in the interior of Alaska, but it's so vast. I, maybe that's what I'm looking. That's the word I'm looking for. Is Alaska is so vast and it puts you in a place that is just so magical. That you're right. It's hard to it's hard to come back from that, even though where you live is extraordinary in its own in its own right. So it was really nice. So, to thank you. And oh, Shane, go ahead. Um, because uh, you know we were just together. What was it, Jody? Was it on Sunday? Sunday morning or last uh, Saturday? Saturday. Yeah, Saturday night. Yeah, Saturday night. And it's just so neat to see like pieces of scrap paper laying around in their kitchen that talks about different flights to different islands and different rivers. And I mean, that just seems like it's a norm for you guys to 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 just to constantly be getting out and exploring and experiencing um and harvesting different different wildlife. It's just amazing that like that's kind of a norm in Alaska. It seems like most of the people I've met up there are, you know, they they hunt or they fish and whether it's commercially or for um for subsistence or for sport, 
uh, it just kind of seems like it's just part of everyone's life. And, and it was so inspiring to, to, to talk to you guys about like where I might be able to go and harvest a moose. And I've been researching it since then. You know, I, I really look forward to heading up there and, and, and not necessarily guiding, but I'm, you know, I continue, I plan to continue guiding on the Alsec river. It's going to be the first two weeks of July, probably every year. So if you're interested in joining me, reach out and I'll connect you with how you might be able to join me on an expedition, but also plan to return and, 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 and pursue moose. And so Jody, I don't know, like we're, we're talking about your state, but I would love for you to jump in here now. And like, maybe we can just tie in hunting a little bit because from my knowledge, um, there's hunting in Glacier Bay and you can access it from the air, but what else is there to say about the hunting in that region? I feel like our uh, time frame for hunting is is pretty large, like August 1st to the end of December for Sitka Blacktail is, um, you know, that's the norm for us, but you talk to other people and they're like, wow, you can hunt like that whole time? <laughs> and yeah, the the number of like locations and different animals that you can be hunting here, yeah, it's vast. And I um, talked to people who, uh, not hunters, just they came for a summer job and they never left. Or I was just walking the dogs on a hike the other day, and a couple of people, I you know, they're wearing wearing some hunting garb, and I was like, oh, so you guys are probably hunters, and oh yeah, we're up visiting, you know, a family member, and I'm trying to get my sister to move here so that. I can come hunting in the next of kin category. <laughs> you know, it seems like anyone appreciating uh, hunting or wild places, foraging, all of that, they're, you know, if they've had a taste of Alaska, they're scheming to get back. <laughs> You're not wrong. Well, I think this concludes our, um, our podcast episode. So rolling into our weekly closer, for hits and misses. Jody, I would love to hear what you've been aiming for and how did it go? I feel like I have a hit with um, yesterday, a simple um, dog walk and berry pick with a friend. It was like easy paced, uh, easy time frame, And uh, as I get older, I'm needing more time to go to slower pace and uh, step back from beast mode. And that's been a difficult transition to accept, but um, I really enjoyed myself yesterday and uh, I feel like that's a hit. I think that's lovely. We are so focused on pursuing the next thing and, and going full blast at it that, yeah, you do forget to have those small, small wins. All right, Mandela. Let's hear yours. You go first. You go first. Let me just give me one more moment. I've got to think about this a little bit more. Well, I have been aiming for getting my knee repaired. And so I finally got surgery this week um, and surgery went well. Anesthesia is not my favorite, um, but I am hoping for a recovery and um, getting back at it. But I, unfortunately, I will be missing my elk season this year. So it's a bummer. but the knee had to be done. Speaking candidly, I just had to say that I've never struggled this much with re-entry. And I've been doing this for quite a long time where, you know, juxtaposition is something I 
normally embrace. So going from guiding back-to-back expeditions in Grand Canyon to suddenly being in the concrete jungle of New York City or Los Angeles. And uh, I truly still feel like part of my spirit is floating around with those icebergs up in Alsec Lake. And so I think part of my hit is being kind to myself and taking it slow this week and uh, just being gentle on my yoga mat and eating the foods that my body's asking me to eat, which is a lot and a lot, a lot of fresh vegetables, which I didn't have on the river necessarily. We have a lot of really nice meals out there, but sometimes I walk away from these trips feeling a little heavy because it's not normally stuff I eat. We share a lot of pancakes and French toast and that kind of stuff with our guests. So it's a lot of heavy foods. And so I think that my hit is being kind to myself um, after such a incredible life-changing experience and feeling sad to not be on the river right now because you know they're on day three of the next launch with an amazing crew of people that I've worked with all over the world and I wanted to be there with them but my path at this point in my life is stepping away from full-time guiding in order to play a larger role in protecting these areas and I really experienced that um, last month when I was in Washington DC I was able to speak at the White House on behalf of permanent protections for Grand Canyon. And that felt like kind of closing the loop in terms of making that really hard decision to walk away from guiding full-time in order to play a larger role in protecting these places. And so my hit is realizing that I am struggling with re-entry and being kind to myself and letting my spirit slowly but surely catch up with my physical body. That said, my spirit is certainly all over the world and all these different wild places that I've guided. I know that part of me is hanging out in these places. Um, And then my miss is uh, probably being late for my friend right now who I'm taking riverboarding. But um, it's probably because, you know, this has been such a nourishing and wonderful conversation with you guys that I lost track of time. Um, And uh, yeah, so, you know, here I am. I'm constantly trying to be better about time management. And uh, so, yeah, does that work for a hit and a miss? These are always hard for me. I love it. The miss one is that'll be my consistent miss always. I will never be on time. It's impossible. I mean, time is so different in different cultures, but um, thank in you. Montana, it's, <laughs> you know, I'm still trying to figure out what time is in Missoula because it depends on the person. But um, I know that I'm trying to be more on time so that I can honor the people who are on time. So being on time sometimes exactly. means being five minutes early. And that's definitely not going to be the case today. But I'm already wearing my swimsuit. So I'm, I'm halfway there. excellent well jody thank you for joining me as our co-host and mandela this was really an amazing story to listen to so thank you for taking the time today and sorry we've made you late and to all of our listeners thank you for joining us this week on the artemis podcast we hope you're having a great week and until next time be bold stay curious and get outside (laughs) 